0: Genesis chapter 1, the very first sentence of Scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is where it all begins. Out of gratuitous love and sheer delight, God, the Creator King, creates the cosmos. He starts with Making raw materials. We see that because verse 2 tells us that what he made initially was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God begins to lovingly and creatively bring forth life from this mass of potential until finally. At the high point of creation, he creates humans. And in in Genesis chapter 2, humans aren't so much the high point, they're the centerpiece. And he makes us in his own image so that we can know and love him. So that we can know and love one another. So that we can know and love and care for creation. And so that just like he has been doing, we can draw out of creation its potential. However, that's not what happens. Instead of cultivating and nurturing and making creation better and better, Adam and Eve spoil it. And so in Genesis 3, for the first time, there's sin. And in that moment when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they commit treason against the creator king. And they throw away their birthright. Of beauty. And as a result, every dimension of life, every square inch of matter is broken. It's stained, it's infected with the cancer of sin and death and evil. Us, nature, our relationships with one another, our relationship with nature, our relationship with God, our relationships with ourselves, nature's relationship with itself, all of it broken. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God, in his great mercy, begins the work then of rescuing humanity. Of salvaging us, of righting all the wrong. Now, how does he do this? Or two-thirds of the Bible says he does this by choosing one person. Abraham. And the Creator King makes two great once-and-for-all promises to once-and-for-all heal this world. And what are those promises? He promises Abraham, number one, a son, and number two, a land. And through this son, God will raise up a nation in this land. And this is how God will rescue the entire cosmos... From the catastrophe of sin and death and evil. Through Abraham, through his descendants, the people of Israel, God will cause all of the families of the earth to be blessed and indeed the earth itself. But you keep reading the Old Testament and you quickly see that Israel is no good solution. She's as much a part of the problem as anybody else is. And so by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's a sense in which this is an unfinished narrative. Things are supposed to happen that haven't happened. When you read the Old Testament, you see great beginnings and wonderful visions of God's plan and his purposes. But then a steady decline and a puzzling and shameful failure of the very solution itself. The whole Old Testament ends with a pregnant pause. And then, in the very first book of the New Testament, the gospel according to Matthew, in the very first words of this book, Matthew signals the long wait is over. Now remember, we read the Bible... In a translation. We read it in an English translation. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Matthew did not grow up reading it. In its original language. He grew up reading. As a part of the Greco-Roman Empire. So he would have been reading what? Greek. And he grew up reading the Old Testament. In its Greek translation. Just like you and I read it. In its English translation. Now when he's writing his gospel, remember Matthew, like so many other Jewish people of his day, he had memorized the Old Testament, so many of its stories, and so many of its verses, and so many of its lines. He had memorized it in Greek, the Greek translation. It's called the Septuagint. And in this very first phrase, The very first two words in Matthew's Greek gospel, he writes, Biblios, Ganesios. Now, if you're like Matthew and you've been immersed in the Greek translation of the Old Testament since you were a child and you're surrounded by a culture for whom this is the Hunger Games, this is Harry Potter, this is the story everybody reads over and over and over, this is the geography of your imagination. If that's the case, then you immediately recognize that Matthew has just quoted Genesis chapter 5. Verse 1. Now, in most of our English translations, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 reads, This is the book of the generations of. Now, in Matthew's Greek translation, it's Biblios Genesios. Biblios, you can hear it, right? The word book. Genesios. Phil Collins made a band after this. Genesis, right? This is the book of the generations or the genesis this is the Biblios Genesios. This is the book of the genesis of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And not just Genesis 5.1, but the exact same phrase appears only one other time in all of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The Biblios Genesios of the heavens and the earth. Now your Bible translates it's probably the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So, Matthew begins his gospel in Greek with this phrase from the story of God's original creation of heaven and earth and Adam and Eve. What's he doing? Well, he's saying that the coming of Jesus is as profound and as powerful and as un, un, unrepeatable and utterly unique as the original act of creation. When God brought all things into... What you're about to read is the book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ. Which I think is a, is a more literal translation of... See, he used the word, didn't he, that's, that's lovely in its illusions because it can mean genealogy... But it also can mean Genesis. So not only is he introducing this genealogy he's about to give, he's giving a title to his whole book. And he's saying, hey, there is now a a beginning that is as mind-boggling and powerful as that first beginning. What you're about to read is the new beginning. The whole universe has just turned a corner. And sure enough, when you continue to read in Matthew's gospel, you get things like like chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16, where we see the Spirit of God descending over water. But this time, it's the water of Jordan. When was the last time we saw the Spirit of God hovering over water? It was when God was drawing out life from His creation. And where else in Genesis does the Spirit hover? It hovers over the womb of a virgin. And draws out of that womb life. This is God's act of creation. The coming of Jesus is a new beginning, a new creation. And then Matthew, with such a remarkable beginning, launches into a genealogy. <laughs> I suspect we won't make you raise your hand and totally reveal yourself for the slacker that you are. But I suspect there are people in this room who've read the Bible, many a lot throughout their lives. And anytime you turn to the New Testament, you skip the genealogy and get to the action. Now think about what the church has done for two millennia in its wisdom has started the New Testament with a genealogy. What's going on here? Well, this is actually a fairly common technique in the Bible, in Israel. And like many societies, they held their identity in their genealogies. A genealogy, it is a powerful way to condense and to summarize your history. Remember to Matthew's readers, each of these names evoked family history that they were familiar with. See, the reason our eyes glaze over in boredom is because we don't know the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1 is filled with very significant things that are only available to those who know Scripture. In fact, in Matthew's gospel later on, he says to him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I suspect that for many of us, we don't have ears to hear. Because we haven't immersed ourselves in all of these stories. And do you know that if you know these stories, every name evokes an encounter with God and with his people and with nature. And notice how that he constructs his genealogy in such a way that he highlights three great moments in Israel's history. And just in case you don't pick up his agenda while you're reading the genealogy... ...when he gets to the end, he summarizes everything in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations... ...and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations... ...and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now this is kind of strange to us, to readers today. There are indeed 14 names between Abraham and David... If you include both Abraham and David. In the next phase, the next section, you have to actually exclude the first name, David, from the list in order to get 14. And then in the last section, you have to include both Tacone and Jesus in order to get 14. Now that's some funny math. What's going on here? And that's not the only place where it's a little slipshod and funny. When you compare it to the genealogy that he was using in his original research to craft this book which comes in 1 Chronicles. You see that he leaves out whole generations. He leaves out one whole family that was particularly bad because he basically erased their name from history. He skips over some. He rearranges some. He does all of this in order to fabricate this progression of three groups of 14. What's his point? Well, first of all, obviously, it's not mathematical precision. He knew that. His readers knew that. That didn't bother anybody. Just like when you read the the newspaper and it said the sun will rise at so and so. It doesn't bother you that that's not, right, precise according to astrophysics, right? That doesn't bother you. Everybody knows you've got a different agenda with it. He's got a different agenda. His his point here is not statistical, it's theological. Three groups of 14. That's six groups of what? Seven. The most significant. The most significant. Symbolic number in all of the Bible. So, when is Jesus born? At the beginning of the seventh group of seven, he's the head of the seventh seven. Now, educated first century Jews would have had no difficulty in making this mathematical connection. Matthew is making the strong claim that the birth of Jesus means the time of waiting is over. When you add up the meaning of history, he's saying the bottom line is Jesus Christ. The long story of God's rescue, the story of God's promises to Abraham's people has come to its fulfillment. It's seventh, seventh with the new David. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Uh, Gematria, it's the Hebrew use of turning um, words into numbers and adding them up. David in Hebrew, it's got three consonants. Um, Each of these have numeric consonants. Values You add them up, it comes to 14. David is actually the 14th name in the list. Matthew's doing a lot of stuff here in order to make the strong claim that the time has come. God is now embarking on the great Sabbath rest of his people. After the ups and downs of Israel's history, there is now a super Sabbath. Sabbath is seventh day. There's now a super Sabbath. A seven times seven Sabbath. A Jubilee Sabbath has arrived in Jesus. Jesus brings Sabbath. He delivers his people from bondage. He subdues the land to peace. He delivers an inheritance. He puts down our enemies on every side. Jesus comes to deliver us from the burdens imposed on us by hypocritical Pharisees. He comes to release our burdens, the burdens of our sins, the burdens of the law, the burdens of anxiety and fear. He comes to announce to you and to me jubilee, which took place in the year after the seventh sabbatical year, the year when slaves were released, when all Israelites returned to their ancestral lands, the year that saw Israel reordered and put right. Jubilee means the end of exile. And Jesus comes as the Lord of Jubilee. Matthew is saying to you, "All of your problems are solved in Jesus Christ. He is the great rest for your soul that your soul longs for. Now, how? How will Jesus pull off such an astonishing feat? I mean, we've just set the bar really high, right? The whole creation renewed. All of your problems dealt with. I mean, this is huge, right? How will Jesus actually affect a thing as momentous as the original Big Bang? How will Jesus affect something as unrepeatable As the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and drawing out of it for the first time, light and darkness and separating water from land. How will this happen? Well, remember I said that a genealogy is a very powerful way to condense and summarize history. And one way that genealogies are so powerful is because they are so limited. See, when when you have a very strict formula... You have the opportunity for a profound innovation. Look at this. Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And this goes all the way through the entire genealogy. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And that person was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. It's this very steady rhythm. So when in the midst of a, of a steady cadence, you suddenly change the beat, you should notice. Now, he, he breaks rhythm in two ways. And I, ju- I just read them. One of the breaks is when he identifies a wife. He does this only five times, and we'll talk about that next week. It's the other break in the rhythm that we need to see this week. This break only happens twice. Look at the end of verse 2. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. Instead of going straight from Jacob, the father of Judah, who was the father of Perez, he breaks rhythm with three little words in English, right? And his brothers. Now he does this again in verse 11. And Josiah the father of Jeconia, and his brothers. Look, these genealogies are so tight, every nuance has an agenda. It's fascinating what Matthew's done. Now, now to pick up on this, again, you've got to know the Old Testament. It's got to be more deeply ingrained in your mind than what does the fox say or whatever you're watching on YouTube these days. It's got to be there. And, and, and to know what he's doing here, you, you, you have to have a particular capacity for the last third of the book of Genesis. Which is all about Judah and his brothers. Now Joseph is a central character, but Judah is the most important character. Joseph is the next to youngest of 12 brothers. Judah is the third oldest. In Genesis 37, some of you know the story, Joseph's brothers get ticked off at him because he's such an arrogant, naive, patronizing little brother, right? Not only does his dad love him the most, he likes to tell his brothers about the dreams he has when they will all bow down to him. Right? This is not what you tell people who are already ticked off at you. Right? Oh, by the way, I had a dream that I was so much better than you last night. Right? This is beyond naivete. This is a character flaw. And so his brothers, no strangers to character flaws themselves, decide they will solve the problem in the age-old way that a brother solves a problem with another brother. It's the very first brother story in the Bible. What? Murder. That's right. And, and they've got him down in this pit, and they're deciding how they're going to actually do the dastardly deed when suddenly Judah shows up. And Judah, don't think it's a fit of mercy. It's a fit of greed. Says, hey, instead of killing him, we can make money. Let's just sell him into slavery, which many people would attest is a worse fate than death. So they sell him into slavery out of Judah's greed, perhaps some mercy in there. And then that's Genesis 37. You think you're in the Joseph cycle. You think you're in the cycle telling the story of Joseph. It's just getting going. And the very next chapter has nothing at all to do with Joseph. It's a rather scandalous story of Judah. Whose son dies and in his grief does two wicked things. First of all, he refuses to give his daughter-in-law. What he is commanded by God to give her. Which is the ability to live without a husband. And he does to her what he had just done to Joseph. Consigns her to a fate worse than death. And then in his grief we see that Judah apparently practices free love with the Canaanite women. Because he's off working one day. And he goes to visit a prostitute. Very, very strange story, by the way. It's, it's actually not a prostitute. It's his daughter-in-law that he just ticked off, posed as a prostitute, which it brings all kinds of crazy implications. And in all of this, do you know what you see? You see Judah is one wicked dude. He's bad. But then, when his daughter-in-law shows up pregnant, Judah changes. And for the first moment in the story, Judah does right. He does the right and kind. And beginning at that point, we see Judah's transformation. And Judah doesn't just stop with one good deed. By the end of Genesis, Judah has been transformed. And by the time we get to chapter 43, verse 8, the entire family is in a life or death famine situation. And Judah sacrifices his own life. He goes before his father and he offers his own life as the only way out of a situation that will end in everybody's death. And sure enough, it works so he doesn't have to die. And then they get to Egypt and Joseph is not a righteous man. He's a conniving trickster. And Judah once again looks in the eye Of the one who holds his life in his hand and pleads by laying his life down. And so that when you get to the end of Genesis, what you see in this passage that Phil read to us. When Judah, the third born, the reason he has become the the senior son, the leader of all the sons, is because Judah has learned and time and time again he has offered his life in ransom for others the exact opposite of what he had done as a young man he has been transformed he's 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 time and time again been willing to undergo anything even his own death for the deliverance of his brothers so he becomes the leader and the savior of his family and we don't have time to go into it but Jaconia does the same thing. Now, do you see what Matthew is doing by inserting these three little words Judah and his brothers, Jaconia, and he's drawing your imagination to the foundational stories for Israel to say that Jesus is the kingly ruler Israel has been waiting for, and like Jaconia, and like Judah before him, he will save his people how? By laying his life down. The whole gospel of Matthew is here in a nutshell. For he who has eyes to see and ears to hear. This is how Jesus will inaugurate the new creation. This is how Jesus will save you from all of your problems. He will do it by laying down his life. The creator king has fulfilled his once and for all promise to Abraham to rescue this entire universe, the entire creation, the whole world from its brokenness. How? Through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial life. The creator of the world has entered into a unique relationship with Abraham and promised that through his offspring, through Israel, he would do something to end the wait, to solve your problems. And he does this with Jesus Christ. Now, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus, his life, his His sacrificial death. Do you believe that that is the solution to the whole universe being disjointed? Do you believe that the sacrificial life and death of Jesus is the solution to your sin? Do you trust in Jesus... That in his life and death, the door to new creation has been cracked open. Do you trust him as your Lord? Have you placed your faith in him that his life and his death is the only way the real weight of your sin can be dealt with? Do you believe that this alone is how you can be restored to God, to yourself, to others, to God's creation? And if you believe this, I don't don't mean merely in the sense that, yeah, you acknowledge it's true. I mean, do you believe it in the sense that a husband looks at a wife and says, I believe in you. Do you believe it in, in, in the sense that parents look at children who are going off the rails and they say, with all truth, I believe in you. Do you believe this in the sense that you are leaning on it? That you trust? That you, that you are centering your whole life around Jesus? Do you believe this in such a way That you are filled with hope that when He comes again, you will be there, a part of the new heavens. And the new earth. St. Augustine put it this way. The first coming of Christ the Lord. God's son. And our God was in obscurity. The second will be in the sight of the whole world. When he came in obscurity. No one recognized him but his own servants. When he comes again. He will be known by both good people and bad. When he came in obscurity. It was to be judged. When he comes openly. It will be to judge. Do you believe this? is your whole life. Shaped by this, if this is difficult for you, then I encourage you to sort it out. There is nothing more important than you sorting this out. If you're filled with doubt and skepticism, go for it. Look at the evidence. Track it down. Try to figure it out because if this is true and if everything rides on it, nothing can be more important than that. But there's more here Jesus is not only our sacrifice, his sacrifice is our example. We've got to learn to read the life of Jesus, not only as the thing that saves us, but we've got to learn to read it as the pattern for how we should be living. So how should you and I live? In self-sacrificial love. Are you doing that? You know, in just a couple of chapters, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Are you going to inherit anything? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now look, this is tricky. It's tricky, I think, for the lawyers. How do you work that out in your vocation? It's tricky for athletes. How do you build your whole life around meekness? out of a deep faith that that's the ticket to inheriting the earth in all of its fecund beauties. This is tricky for husbands and wives who don't like each other. That the only way to follow Jesus in this moment is to be meek. It's tricky when your neighbor is obnoxious. It's tricky in the face of evil. But you know what the good news is? We've got a pattern. You want to know what meekness looks like? Just read the Gospels. How did Jesus behave in the presence of evil? How did he behave when he was being attacked? Do you believe that the meek shall inherit the earth? If you believe that. Are you living your life now based on that? You see what the pattern is? The pattern is humility with confidence. Humility now that that in deep confidence, Christ will return and all wrongs will be righted and all pains will be healed and all of your suffering will be vindicated. Humility with a confidence in the return of Christ. Do you live like that? Are you marked by humility and meekness? Now look, there's all kinds of fancy ways to not be meek. Some of them are aggressive and some of them are passive aggressive. You can be viciously unmeek without ever laying a hand on anybody. Do you believe the meek? Do you believe Judah and his brothers that that's the ticket? Laying your life down. Denying your rights. Are my children in here? I don't think they are. Look, have you ever raised five kids all claiming the best seat in the suburban? Everything in our culture says my rights or what I fight for. Read the Gospels. Lay your life down. The meek shall inherit the earth. Foremost of all, we read in Psalm 2 that there is a king. And because of his meekness, all of this earth will be his reward. He is our savior and he is our example. Let's pray.